Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. For years now, I have been haunted by something called Cachonia. Cachonia is something that defies explanation, demands explanation, but whose explanation you actually don't desire. This is especially true if you are a foreigner living in Hungary and are unfamiliar with all the ways that you can digest a pig. Cachonia is a quote-unquote delicacy that you're going to come across only in traditional Hungarian homes. And only the men usually eat it, and I'm pretty sure it's just a test of courage, and that's all. My first encounter with Cachonia came just before Christmas of 2016. Uh, Hungarians should be famous for their hospitality. They're amazing. And so I found myself with an invitation uh, to have dinner with a teacher and her husband during Christmas break since I was living by myself there. And we were chatting in the kitchen and she was putting dinner together and she asked me to get something from the fridge. And it was probably wine because Hungarians love their wine. But anyway, so I went over there and not knowing about how my life was going to change, I just casually opened the fridge drawer. And my eyes were immediately drawn to a bowl that was sitting on a shelf all by itself as though all the other dishes in the fridge were cowering from it. And this bowl was clear, so you could not unsee what was inside of it. And this clear bowl was filled with this transparent, sickly green gelatin. And there was something suspended in the midst of this gelatin And it took my mind a few moments to just register what I was looking at. See, what I was looking at was a completely intact but severed pig's hoof that was turning a very rotten shade of green. And so I stared at it for um, several seconds, enough that my host asked me what was going on. And so I I asked her if she was performing a science experiment because that was the only logical explanation for what I was looking at. And she looked bewildered a little bit. And I pointed at the pig's hoof sitting in her fridge. And she goes, no, 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 that's cachonia. It's a Hungarian delicacy. It's delicious. Would you like to try some? And so me, trying not to be rude, decided to ask instead what it was um, instead of saying, no, thank you. Uh, And that was probably a mistake. So here's what cachonia is as much as I can tell. Um, Supposedly, it's jellied pig's foot, which means that a, a, a raw I'm pretty sure a raw pig's hoof is just put into this jelly, and then it rots until the meat starts to come off the bone, at which point you then gobble it up with also the jelly that all the juices have seeped into. So I managed to escape eating cachonia that day. I have not escaped the nightmares of it since. And so for us today, just to get us started this morning, at your table, I want you to share What was the strangest dish that you have ever eaten or been offered? Okay, what was the strangest thing you've ever eaten or been offered? Couple minutes at your table, discuss, ready, go. And for you guys online, do the same in your chat. All right, remember that lunch is happening after this service. My initial and admittedly sustained revulsion of Cachonia is perhaps matched only by the crowd's response to Jesus' revelation that he is the bread of life. 
Because the more they understood what he was offering them, the more disgusted they became. And the more disgusted they were, Jesus uh, still refused to back down. Last week, we followed the crowd as they searched for Jesus the day after he miraculously fed thousands of people with but a few loaves and fish. And they wanted a king, someone who would deliver them from their enemies and provide for them just as the prophet Moses seemed to do during the exodus of Israel from Egypt long, long ago. But this king, they wanted on their terms. And so they tried to force Jesus to become king that day, though he managed to escape. And when the crowds find him the next day across the lake, John, the writer of this gospel, drops us into this discussion where the tension between the crowd's expectations of Jesus and who he is and Jesus' own purpose come to loggerheads. See, the crowd wants to make a deal to get the life that they want. And yet Jesus offers them something more than that life. He offers them eternal life. The crowd wants life without their enemies and outsiders. And Jesus instead offers a life with God as their father where everyone can be an insider. Now we ended last week at verse 40. Jesus has declared that he is the bread of life that came down from heaven and he has revealed the promises to those that come to him. That all who come will be truly satisfied. That they will be forever kept and cherished with hope that never ends in a future with a loving father. And yet the crowd misses this entirely, or dismisses it instead. And they oddly get stuck at just a a single point. And before we jump into the rest of this discussion Jesus has, I'm going to pray for us one more time. Uh, Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you desire us to know you, uh, that you want us to know that you are a loving Father who has provided a way for us to come to you. Um, As we read Jesus' words today, Would you help us to hear that invitation still? Um, Help us to to taste and see your goodness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Now, of all the things that they could have gone after, the crowd now more specifically identified as the Jews, this antagonistic element from Jerusalem, that grumble over one thing, that Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven. Because in their thinking, how, could, how in the world could Jesus be heaven sent when we know his family? Now, Jesus was clearly failing the very first test because if he is supposed to be this bigger, better Moses, he wouldn't claim he's from heaven when he looks like an average Joe and his family's down the street. Now, side note, and I think this is fascinating given Jesus' declaration that no one comes to him unless drawn by the Father. Because after Jesus says that he is the bread of life, back in verse 35, the crowd no longer engages him. And so for the rest of this chapter, the crowd is only going to talk amongst itself and never to Jesus again. Now back on track. Jesus responds, 43. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. 
No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Now, the crowd expect God to be like them, but they also expect him to have a more spectacular presentation. And so they look at Jesus, and they just don't see the right stuff. And in a very strange way, for the crowd, Jesus is both too human and yet not human enough. Because they expect him to be human and that he's motivated by the same human desires and ambitions. And yet they expect him to be more than human and that they want flashy miracles. And this miracle of him feeding 5,000 men with bread yesterday just wasn't spectacular enough. And Jesus seems to say that if they were truly drawn by the Father, then they would recognize that the Father had sent him. But their understanding of God does not allow them to see a humble man from a poor family in rural Galilee as God's chosen one, the Savior of the world. And Jesus seems to say, too, that they've lost sight of what he's actually offering because instead of being drawn by the Father, they're drawn to him by their bellies and their ambitions. That they actually don't truly want God. Instead, they just want what they, they want the life that they want. And even the way God draws people disrupts their expectations, because if fed, the crowd will happily follow a tyrant who shares their ambitions. But Jesus says that God is a father who gently draws people to his son, not through force or compulsion or bribery. And the passage that Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah talks of God's compassion and restoring relationship with his faithless and hopeless people, that no longer will they be led astray or be afraid, because God himself is going to teach them about who he is and his ways. And then, as Isaiah says, great will be their peace. Now, while Jesus prods at how they expect God to get their attention, with this reference, Jesus also reminds them of the invitation on the table, that all will be taught by God. And this all includes the crowd still, as wayward as they are. And yet it also includes the outsiders that they would like to destroy. Because such grace and such compassion does not fit in the box that they have put God in. And so they cannot see God standing before them. Despite his miracles, despite his teaching, despite his heart poured out. Because the powerful God of the Exodus would not become human and he would not offer relationship with his enemies. Now, having answered the crowd's grumbling about how he could have come from heaven, Jesus now tries to turn them back from their empty ambitions and to eternal life, which he keeps trying to offer them. 47. It says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And now it gets weird. Well, at first it doesn't, because Jesus again reminds them that the offer is relationship. Eternal life is given to those who believe, to those who trust Jesus, the one the Father sent to them. And again, Jesus uses the picture of bread to help them understand this, as he did earlier. But then Jesus connects believing in him to eating this bread, which is him, and which Jesus further clarifies is his flesh. 
And somehow, this is a dish that Jesus says is going to nourish the world, to give life to the world, which the manna that this crowd keeps looking for did not because everyone who ate the manna during the Exodus has died. Right? And so now the crowd is both disgusted and also a little bit depressed. And so they, of course, respond to this. 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, it's unlikely that anyone in the crowd seriously thought that Jesus was talking about cannibalizing him. It is a disturbing image. It's very provoking. But they're, they're wrestling. They're trying to understand what Jesus means by it. In fact, they're struggling so much that John describes them as full-on fighting with each other over its meaning, which the NIV just says strong or argues strongly, right? No, it's full-on fighting. And ironically, amidst all of this, not once do they actually talk to Jesus about it. They just fight amongst themselves. Now, there's some debate over how much the crowd actually perceives the direction that Jesus is going. But it's probably likely at this point that they're realizing that Jesus is not offering a glorious deliverance from Rome, nor the conquest of a promised land, as they assumed that the Passover had meant. Because having your flesh eaten does not bode well for you, period. And Jesus says that his demise, which he willingly gives, offers life not just for the people of Israel, but actually for the whole world. And so after they break out and fights over this, Jesus doubles down. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So Jesus doesn't just double down. He actually makes it worse. And so not only does he give this picture of offering his flesh to eat, but now his blood to drink, which was, of course, another sacrilege, because purity laws at the time said you couldn't even have a bloody steak, let alone have human blood. And if they thought that they could just dismiss this part of Jesus' teaching, he blatantly tells them that there is no other way to life, that to live, you must eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. You must do that. At face value, this is Jesus' most disturbing teaching. And yet for those who come to Jesus seeking not their own ambitions but looking for the Father, they find something even more incomprehensible, something even further beyond expectation that almost makes cannibalism seem sane. Because Jesus is trying to help us understand what believing in him means. And this terrifying phrase, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, is a direct parallel to his earlier statement, whoever believes has eternal life. You have very truly I say, say to you, like he highlights them. So since the crowd ignored his first bombshell statement, this time he makes it unavoidable by comparing it to eating his flesh. And in some strange way, Jesus is telling us that eating is actually a picture of believing. So that as the famous old dead Christian St. Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. So let's pause here for a couple minutes. Around your tables... I want you just to kind of contemplate how does the simple act of eating something help us better understand what it means to believe? Okay? How does eating, 
How is eating a picture of believing? Get a couple minutes around your tables or the chat online and wrestle with that. Eating is one of those simple pictures that Jesus gives that is so simple that at first we can dismiss it, perhaps with a teenage eye roll. But the more we think of it, the more we realize there's stuff to unpack. That's not just something we do over a moment or a week or even a year, but it's actually a lifetime of eating that we learn more about what it means to believe. And in fact, when you leave today and you head to lunch, as you are munching on your meal, consider what does it mean to believe? But that's just about believing. What about specifically believing in Jesus? Now, I don't think that Jesus adds drinking his blood just for shock value. A little bit of it, yes. But I think it actually helps us unpack what he means by offering his flesh to eat. So in that time, to talk about the shedding of blood, the pouring out of blood, was to refer to a violent death. And so throughout the letters of the New Testament, when you come across like the Apostle Paul talking about the blood of Christ, more often than not, he's talking about Jesus' execution on a cross, not about his blood specifically. And it's a euphemism of sorts, kind of like a nice way to say something horrible, like how a child will skin their knee, bleed all over, and we still call it a boo-boo. So what Jesus is getting at is not only is he offering himself to die, but that is going to be a violent death. And this violent death, Jesus claims, is what food is supposed to point us to. So my body is true food and my blood true drink is not in the sense that we actually physically eat his body and blood, but whatever food is and does is actually supposed to help us better understand Jesus's sacrifice for us. And you can chew on that over lunch as well. Ironically, it is through this death that Jesus promises eternal life now and to come at the last day. And so the simple statement of whoever believes has eternal life, Jesus now describes as eating his flesh and drinking his blood, meaning that we accept his violent death on behalf of the world. And yet there is even more. Picking back up in verse 56. It says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And so now Jesus turns to unpack what eternal life is. And the picture he gives is of remaining in him and he in us. Now, anytime you're in the book of John and you come across the words remaining or abiding, depending on the translation, you should go on high alert because these are going to be the main focal point of the end of the book. And later in the gospel, Jesus will famously compare remaining or abiding in him with a branch being joined to a vine. And so what we find is that eating, believing in the end is about being joined to Jesus in some similar way to how food that is eaten is absorbed into the body. It, remains, it means remaining, abiding, being one with him and he with us. And as you continue through John's gospel, you're gonna, Jesus will fully reveal this in chapter 17. But here in chapter 6, we find the groundwork for it. 
Now, as we mentioned last week, Jesus reveals God as a father who has only ever always loved his son, who most naturally as the father shares his life and love. And now it's revealed that through being joined to Jesus or being united to Christ, as is said elsewhere in the Bible, that God shares his very life with us. And so eternal life then that Jesus keeps offering is not about immortality. Eternal life is God forever sharing with us the life that he has always enjoyed with his son. And try to taste the difference in that. Of course, the crowd responds. 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, the crowd takes to this, again, like I took to Kachonia. And it's not a hard teaching as though it's difficult to understand, like the physics of writing a surfboard, but hard to accept, like how surfing is a smart idea. Or to go back to food, I understand what Kachonia is, but I'm still not going to eat it. I refuse to accept it. Because it's scandalous. It's absurd. If God truly cared about us, he would give us what we want. He would give us full bellies and broken enemies, not a savior who empties himself in order to be broken for us. And it's the Passover. The Jews expected the destruction of their enemies, like Egypt was destroyed as they left it. And they focused on the manna that provided for them on the way to the conquest of the promised land. And yet Jesus looks at the Passover and he starts at the very beginning. He says, I am the Passover lamb. The lamb that was grew up with the family that was then killed and eaten by them and whose blood was put or painted on the doorframe so that that family could live. That is the meaning of this Passover. So at your tables, what we're going to do now, uh, just, we had a couple big ideas. And so just share whatever is standing out to you from this passage. Right? Could be something from the beginning, could be something that we just talked about, but just what is something that is on your mind All right, so just go around your table, share your thought, and then we'll wrap up here. All right, notice again that the crowd doesn't come to Jesus with this. They just grumble amongst themselves. And yet there's something else too here because now it's no longer the crowd, nor is it the Jews but now it's many of his disciples, right? the people who had committed to following him. Because if Jesus says that he is willing, willingly going to a violent death, what does that mean for the people following him? 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
even with many of his own followers grumbling against him, Jesus does not back down because he's not here to meet their expectations, but to offer them so, something so much better, fuller, meatier, so to speak. That if they truly knew God, if they could see Jesus return to where he was before, their petty picture of God would be shattered. Because their eyes on themselves, they expect God to be just like them. They trust in their human understanding, and so they miss the Spirit of God working and speaking through Jesus. They trust their human hearts, and they miss the heart of the Father poured out through his Son. And the great irony is that the Son became human so that we might understand God, but in being human, we refuse to recognize him because we wanted something else. One Bible scholar put it this way, saying, what they wanted, Jesus would not give, and what he offered, they would not receive. And in a shocking twist to the gospel story, but one that was not unexpected to Jesus himself, many of his disciples deserted him. And watching those who had been so committed to him the day before leave in droves, Jesus turns now to the 12 disciples whom he had chosen, who had been with him from the beginning. 67 says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Now this question isn't just for them alone, because it's also for those who read this book for us who have followed the story of Jesus thus far. Because confronted with the full extent of God's offer of his son for us, will we still hold on to our expectations and the assumptions of who God is and what he is supposed to do? Or will we instead remain with Jesus as he promises to remain with us? All right, will you take and eat all that Jesus offers? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who the one of the 12 was later to betray him. Now, you could interpret Peter's response as this great statement of faith and understanding about who Jesus is and what he offers, but I doubt it given Peter and the rest of the Gospels. And yet for those who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, of course this makes sense. Why would we leave? Who, would, like who else would we go to? Jesus is the best. He's the answer. And yet perhaps it's too cynical to interpret Peter as saying that Jesus is the best of bad options. And yet I think if we're honest, in some seasons of life, that feels like all we have. Uh, I imagine standing there with Jesus' disciples, listening to him and thinking that this man is a crazy person. And yet him sounding crazy is still better than all of the other options that people have tried to sell me on. Our culture today tells us that we can choose our own realities, that we can even find alternative facts to suit our views of the world and life, that personal freedom and choice are the greatest goods that we could ever hope to aspire to. And yet in going down that path, all we find are just empty lives full of brokenness and a lot of frustration. Jesus does not always make sense to me. 
But as one of my teenage interns this week pointed out, we don't have to fully understand Jesus to trust him. Because how could we expect to fully understand a God so much bigger than us? Now, that does not mean that faith is stupid or it's blind. But it's that we trust God, we, but we trust God in the things we don't understand because of, we trust in the things that he has made clear to us. That we look to what we do know first as we engage the things we don't know. That we look to God's love revealed for us in giving his son on a cross. Right, the father has given us his son so that we may live. That Jesus gave his life on that cross so that we might be brought not to just a promised land, but to heaven where God lives with us, where we are joined to him. And the only thing that the father wants to make this happen is relationship. Right? He wants us to trust and believe in the one he has sent. Where we know him as our father who shares his life and his love through his son and by his spirit. And to us, of course, that doesn't make sense because it is so inhuman in the sense that it is so opposite of how humanity works. And yet Jesus gives us a vision of God as a father overflowing with life and love and goodness that he longs to share. Even to the point that he offers us his son who dies a violent death so that he might share his life with us forever where we're free from sin, where we are free from fear, only, ever, always in his love. And it is scandalous, and it is absurd. And yet, if God is the loving Father whom Jesus reveals, both through his teaching and, in th and through his actions, then it makes the most sense of all. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to understand you. Um, it is hard to understand your ways when they are so different than ours. That you would desire us, that you would ask only for relationship with us, that, that we would trust you, that we would believe in Jesus whom you have sent, and that you offer to share the life that you have always enjoyed with him, with us. God, would you help us to understand that more? this week. Uh, would you help us to taste and see of your goodness in Jesus? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.